We're going to be doing six verses this morning, and the title of the message is The Lord of the Sabbath, Part 2, but we're going to be looking at the implications of Christ's anger and his grief, and what that means for us, and that we know that uh, Jesus is both compassionate, and at times he does get angry and he grieves, but it is so important to our lives today, even this morning, as we look at why Jesus was that way uh, on the Sabbath. So last week we looked at the fact that, uh, you know, Jesus got busted. I suppose he wasn't religious enough, right, uh, for the religious establishment. He was uh, in the grain fields eating with his disciples. It was very similar to, if you remember, King David and his companions. They went into the, uh, the holy place. Uh, and they ate the consecrated bread, which wasn't lawful ceremonially speaking. It, it, it was you couldn't do that. But for the sake of uh, their stomachs and uh, God's compassion was shown and, and gave David and his companions food. The only person that was angry with that incident was Saul. And as we see the parallel, the contrast uh, of uh the comparison, I should say, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus wanted to show compassion to his disciples, and, and he was perfectly fine, lawfully speaking, even from Deuteronomy, that they could take the heads of the grain and prepare a small little meal. It's almost like eating, eating a bag of potato chips. It wasn't much. It was just enough to sustain them, to get them to where they were going. And the Pharisees, of course, were angered at that frustrated and we could see that Jesus looked like a liberal it's interesting isn't it he just, he just wasn't religious enough for them and it shows us something maybe even about our own hearts and we're going to see more of Jesus uncovering the, the false religion of Judaism and how it actually hurt people and how Jesus continually, over and over and over again, showed unbelievable compassion to people around him. And that exposed their hearts and their superficial religion, their spiritual pride, their hypocrisy. And that was incredibly convicting last week. And now we're ready for another round this week. Right? You ready? Yeah. All right. This was fun to prepare as it always is. Just a, what a privilege it is to spend the week just looking at the Word of God and letting it do something to your own heart before you come up here, uh, which I sometimes don't feel like it does enough before. I, I definitely preach a better message than I live. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think we all would, right? Um, and so it's kind of a weird thing to be up here sometimes because I'm like, Lord, I, I'm just not ready. I ha you haven't done enough to me in my life this week for in order for me to get up here but I suppose that will always be that way every week so turn with me to chapter 3 verse 1 we're just going to read the six verses and then we'll get into the first part of it he entered again into the synagogue so last week they're in the grain fields and this week they're in the synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so there was already a plan there was already uh, some sort of plan to see if Je what Jesus would do, because of course, already we're just in chapter three and they're ready to kill him. And so they're ready to see how they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You can see even the point of this paragraph was aimed at Jesus to trap him. And of course, Jesus being omniscient knew exactly what was in their hearts. So why were they so angry? Just by way of introduction, why are they so angry with Jesus? There's two reasons why between last week and this week we saw is the one who claimed to be God. How do we know that is because this is Mark's point. Through the whole 16 chapters, he wants you to know that Jesus is God. He is the king. Remember, he's writing to whom? Roman believers, right? In Rome. And he's writing to them saying, Caesar is not the king. Every passage is almost like there's 16 nails in wood. And he's just hammering every chapter. He's like, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And he wants them to know that you can trust him. And so if I were you this morning, I would say, Lord, open my heart up so that I may know a little bit more about you that may cause me to trust you. That's the purpose of preaching. That's the purpose of even coming to church is so that you hear the word of God. And it says, as you hear the word of God, faith increases. And God is pleased by our faith, didn't he? We can't do anything apart from faith. So we need this this morning. We all need it. Number two, well, first of all, why, how, did he, how, well, how did Mark prove that he's God? He proved that by showing that Jesus said this phrase, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we all know that there's, God is the only one that established the Sabbath, right? Genesis 2 and Exodus 20. And so Jesus made a point without him saying, I mean, all the skeptics say, well, Jesus never said that he's God. Well, maybe he never came out and said, I am God. So you must listen to me. He proved it in so many different ways, didn't he? So many different ways. Indirectly, ways like this. Well, I mean, look, all you have to do is put a few pieces together and realize that if God established the Sabbath and Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, well, then ultimately he's saying, I'm equal with God. And that's what made the Pharisees upset. Number two, he exposed their superficial religion. Now, if there's anybody in your life that exposes the evil in your heart, what's your response? Thank you. <laughs> that should be the proper response. <laughs> that is not always the case, is it? No. They were angry. They were upset. No one likes their rotten heart exposed. Nobody. Now, if you're wise, right, you would go to God with the word of God and allow him to expose those things because if he doesn't expose those things, it becomes a hindrance to his grace. We all need it. And so that's the problem with the Pharisees. They were, you know, what did they, do? they were white on the outside and they were rotten on the inside. Remember in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation point. 
you are like whitewashed tombs, right? Which on the outside appear beautiful, but in the inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanliness. That's not fun to hear, considering that you work very hard to get to this place where people honor you. They like you to some degree. They're afraid of them, not in a fear of the Lord sense, in a good sense. But they were afraid and they, they revered these people. And the, and, and the Pharisees, they liked it, right? Because they, they remember when Jesus told his disciples, he's like, look, as he was getting towards the end of his life, he's saying, don't be like those guys who always go to a party and sit at the head of the table because they like the honor. Don't be like them. But instead, be humble. Be humble. Because God gives grace to the humble. And he opposes the proud every time. And so it's not fun to be exposed like this, but it is necessary for salvation. And so you can even see God's heart even towards the Pharisees. And so Matthew 5, 20 and 22, just again, just to give you an understanding of how rotten these people were. And then we'll also skip a few verses and pick up in 27 and 28. But he says this, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and they're probably thinking, what in the world? These people are the only guys we got to show us how to live life. And we got to surpass them. What was he ultimately saying? Be like them? Of course not. What was he saying? He was saying, look, these guys are just good on the outside. You got to surpass their righteousness on the outside. Or on the inside, I should say. You should... You have to surpass the righteousness on being clean on the inside, which is impossible for man. Which then shows your need, my need. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, what he's saying is, look, if you're just all nice and pretty on the outside, that's not going to get you to heaven. That will never get anyone to heaven. That will damn people to hell. All the time. That's what it does. That's what self-righteous religion always does. And so, picking up, it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And they're all thinking, Well, none of us are murderers. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Is Jesus speaking. Now everyone here should say, I I I'm done. I, I have done that before. I have certainly been angry. I've I have not committed murder, but not even close to it. I haven't even punched anybody. But I've been so angry inside my heart, and I've taken that to bed with me. I wished ill upon people without even saying it out loud. And Jesus is saying, you'll never get to heaven. You'll never get to heaven. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is incredibly convicting 
for the Pharisees and the disciples and in the crowds as he is giving this on the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees, of course, said no to the external sins, but they were corrupted on the inside. Listen to this, as one man said, the more religious people are, the more prideful they are of their religion. The more proud they are of their spiritual achievement, the more proud they are of their accomplishments, religiously speaking, then the more resistant they are to the gospel of grace. Happens over and over and over again. That is the one hindrance to his beautiful, unending grace. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he got saved. He was full of spiritual pride. In fact, he said this in Philippians 3, 6, says, I'm blameless. What was he saying? He's like, I'm blameless on the outside. But then he later on says in Acts 9 and Romans 7, Philippians 3, 4, he says, but yet internally I was full of covetousness. I was full of spiritual pride and anger. And now he's getting a little bit more real about what's going on inside of him. And that is what caused him to come to Christ and say, I need him. He was stopped right in the middle of his anger, right in the middle of his murder and malice. And Jesus said, while you were still sinners, I'm coming after you. Because he knew that even the law itself, to correct internal issues, would never actually do the trick. Right? It never does. Even if we know it's wrong to be corrupted on the inside, they knew that. It doesn't help us because that's the law too. This little passage in Matthew 5, that doesn't help us, does it? I mean, to one degree, to expose, but it doesn't do anything for salvation. You know what the problem with spiritual pride is? Is that it's so deceptive, isn't it? It feels good to do things on the outside. It, it helps our track record. We keep tallies. We know. Knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? Not knowledge of some sort of news, but knowledge of our own news, our own newsreel, our progress. We all have progress reports inside of our minds, don't we? We know how this person's doing, comparatively speaking, to how we're doing. That's the problem with spiritual pride, is it's a high. It feels good. It's self-satisfying. It's also self-justifying, isn't it? You ever think about it that way? That it is a high. It feels amazing. If you're doing good according to your own standard. That's why, you know, when preachers talk about, you know, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do this, don't do that. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, those things that are really, that, that's not really an issue. The sure way to have a very ugly church, spiritually speaking, is to not speak about the sins of the heart. You've got to speak about the sins of the heart in life group, in your discipleship. You have to speak about those sins in which corrupt all mankind, right? I mean, the 15-year-old boy that went into school this week to shot up kids had malice in his heart. It's not a gun issue. It's a malice issue. It's a, it's a pride issue. It's, a, it, it's, it's an entitlement issue. It's a corruption of heart issue. It always is. 
but no one wants to talk about that. No news station wants to talk about that because they would indict themselves. They would indict themselves. Mark Lloyd-Jones said this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. Isn't that true? We are on, excuse me, we are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. We're our own defendants. Defense lawyers. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. God has to show us. It's by His grace. Because we're always trying to fix ourselves up. It's true for all of us, isn't it? The problem with the Pharisees is that he exposed this. The problem with every bit of politics, even today, is that when you expose it, there's a witch hunt. Isn't it? You can't, you can't allow, I mean, people cannot allow corrupt people that don't want it to be indicted, cannot allow for you to expose the corruption in their hearts and for you to get away from them. It's impossible. And I would say, bring it down on a more small scale in, in our own life group. We should all want to walk in saying, Lord, expose us. Don't, he doesn't ever want to shame anybody. But expose us and then put us back together again. Put us back right. I want to experience your love and your grace. And the only way to do that is for him to expose the spiritual pride that's in all of us. And why the Sabbath? What is with the Sabbath? Why did Mark pick the Sabbath? Why did he pick particularly this day? Is because this was the day for the Pharisees to shine the brightest. They loved the Sabbath. That was their day. Everybody else probably hated it. But these guys, why? Because they, they were the controllers of the rules. They, 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 they set the stage. They, they knew how to manipulate people because this was only supposed to just be for fun. I mean, God gave this as a gift for people to refrain from your work so that you can enjoy family. You can enjoy rest. I mean, for God himself to say, hey, you're like, you're exhausted on a Friday. And God says, well, today, tomorrow's Saturday and enjoy that day. Enjoy it. And these guys came in and they made it hell. They made it worse than probably working. Like, I'd rather just go to work. These guys are like, this is awesome. We love the Sabbath. We love the Sabbath. And since they were so comfortable to live this way, Jesus had to confront them on this day. For all of our benefit, even today, 21st century, he had to confront the Sabbath. And that has very much, that has implications for us even today. Matthew 23, 4, he says this, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. That's what they were doing. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. 
And we should, I mean, all of us were like, ah, Pharisees. Again, this, I've said this before, please don't do that. Say, Lord, how am I like these boneheads, dense, religious, prideful people, <laughs> controlling people? We all are. We may not be as controlling as that person in life group, but trust me, we're controlling. We are. We all are. And Jesus wants to expose that. And he exposed it on the Sabbath. And a reminder too, John 3, they didn't like that because they like their darkness. John 3 says the reason why they get all upset and all out of whack is because they actually really like their darkness. Because the light exposes it and they hate the light. So is the Sabbath supposed to be for today? Last week we talked about just even if you know some people who are maybe Seventh-day Adventists, you know, just to kindly, lovingly show them that it isn't for today. It's not for today. Why? Because Hebrews 3 and 4, if you read that, our true rest is here. Sabbath was meant to be a what? A shadow to what's to come. He's saying, look, if you refrain from working one day, it's, it's symbolic of being at rest in heaven for all of eternity. You won't just have one day of rest. You'll rest in your hearts. Because true rest only is for those who trust Christ. And that was symbolic even as, as, they, as, as the writer of Hebrews shows how the people of Israel were grumbling and complaining and working and, and they weren't trusting and they never found rest in the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews says, he takes it a step further. He says, look, if you don't trust Christ in the midst of your tribes, if you go back to the system of works and Judaism like the Pharisees, then you won't find rest for all of eternity. He gave that as a way of argument. Now, of course, you can look up later on Colossians 2. And there's a few other passages I mentioned last week that show you uh, that the Sabbath is uh, no longer for today, but that we celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday. All right, let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2. He says this, He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now this man in Luke 6, 6, we get, uh, we're kind of putting pieces together to get like the full story. And Luke 6, 6 says it was his right hand. Now that's very significant. He's a physician. He's a doctor. And we trust his word. He said, okay, well, he notices that that was the right hand. And that's helpful for us to know because this man was in a, a place of need. Most people are right-handed and they, he couldn't do anything. It meant he had some neurological disease that rendered his hand useless. It withered. It's like kind of like, a, like dry leaves, uh, 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 like on a, on a dry twig. It just, it, it, the leaves withered away. It, it was no longer, it just kind of wilted. It, it wasn't in use anymore. And if that was his right hand, he, he couldn't work. He couldn't provide. He wasn't, he wasn't able to provide for himself. And so, really, he didn't have a life-threatening disease, but certainly um, it was debilitating. And so, they were watching intently, saying, I know what this guy does. And he's probably going to do something here on the Sabbath that we're, then we'll eventually get him right where we want him. 
But you know what? Something very interesting. This man could have been healed on some other day, right? He wasn't life-threatening. He could have been healed on Monday or Tuesday. Jesus could have gave him a rain check. He could have said, look, uh, you know, just I don't want to cause any problems here. You know what I mean? I'll give you a rain check. Come see me in my office on Tuesday. I'll help you with your hand. No. No, 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 no. That wasn't his plan. It's very important because we're going to learn something about Christ's character here that's very, very important. It often gets distorted in the world. Jesus, meek and mild. Right? He never wants to cause any issues. He always wants to be politically correct. That couldn't be farther from the truth here. He is the aggressor in this instance. He's the instigator here. He's wanting to do one thing and one thing alone. Expose the religious now, I want to give you guys a little bit of background that will be helpful to show you how the Pharisees set things up in this context and how Jesus did indeed violate their rules, but not the Bible. He never violated the scriptures. The Mishnah says this, that if a man has a pain in his throat, they may drop medicine into his mouth on the Sabbath. Since there is doubt whether his life is in danger, and whenever there is a doubt whether his life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. So if they thought, you know, this guy might have a life-threatening problem, well, you know what, then I can lift my arm, turn it over to his, his mouth, drop the little medicine in, and it doesn't, it's not considered work, and we're all good. See how foolishness that, I think it's hard to even read that. So if it was life-threatening, they would help him. If it's not, they would postpone it a day. That was in their laws. That was in their rabbinical literature. And we can read that today. Assistance in childbirth was allowed. That's a very good thing. Any babies were born on Sunday? I don't know. Uh, or Saturday. In that case, Saturday. That would be, a, that would be good that they at least allow that. Because that they would presume that it couldn't wait. The baby's coming out. And... <laughs> And we can't wait any longer. And so, but the paralyzed hand could wait. And that's the point. That's the point that Mark's trying to make. That is the point that Jesus is trying to make here in this passage. Is that yes, it can wait. So would Jesus wait? Would he wait? No. He would not wait. He wouldn't wait. He knew it was a trap. You know, Jesus is our hero. He's a man's man. He's, he's a, he, he is not afraid of man. He's not, he doesn't have any fear of man whatsoever. And he does what is right. He is the spotless lamb of God. Pure. He never violated a law from God. He violated man's laws all the time. How many man's laws do we have today? That intermix in the church. Intermix with politics. They're all over the place. So open up your eyes and see how many games churches play today. So many games. Just to keep the peace. Let me tell you something about Jesus. 
He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in giving true peace. And if he couldn't disturb the peace here, he would never give us true peace on the other side of the cross. Take that to the bank. That is so true, isn't it? Verse 3, he says, he said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. Now listen, this man wasn't like, please, help me, please. I know it's the Sabbath. I know you might get in trouble. Jesus, none of that. The man was quiet. He was in the back. It was just, I mean, he was like way in the back over there. Hey, you, the withered hand, come here. Pharisee's like, yes. And everybody else is like, this is going to be awesome. What's going to happen here? It's going to be a war. <laughs> right? It's exactly what he wanted. It's exactly what Jesus wanted. He said this whole thing. He came in and taught. He knew the guy in the back. He knew the Pharisees were there on the side. Looking. The whole thing was under his control. Isn't that amazing? That should be so comforting to us. To know that he initiated this healing. It was his compassion that drove him to heal this man. But he also had another purpose in it. It was to tick the Pharisees off. There's no doubt about that. That is so clear from this passage. Couldn't be more clear than that. Come forward, he said. Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath or to save a life or to kill? What an incredible, indicting question. If that doesn't expose a heart, I don't know what will. Was, what is this religion all about here? What are we playing games for? What are we doing? What is this? This whole synagogue is not even of my father. You can't find it in the Old Testament. This is a product of your religious establishment. After looking around with them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. It's a very interesting question that he gives. He gives a, a greater to lesser argument. You see Jesus doing this often. And I want to just help you out and understand, just to get underneath what was actually going on and expose the heart even further. He says in Matthew 12, 10 to 12, he gives a little bit more here. He says, they question Jesus asking, same context, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, one man is there among you who has a sheep. And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to be good? It is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He is saying by the scriptures, it is good to do good on the Sabbath. This is the law from my father. Your laws are from the devil. This is my law. My law is compassion. My law is to expose your rotten heart. And that's what he's doing. It's silly. When they'd rather save sheep than humans that are created in the image of God. 
They should have known that. In the image of God, they created them. I mean, he, they know Genesis. The guy probably had it written on his forehead. By this question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill, expose three things? Number one, expose their unlawful nature and their added traditions, their regulations. Number two, expose the hardness of heart towards those who suffer. That's the point. What about the guy in the back? Forget your rabbinical laws. That are useless, meaningless, hard-hearted. They expose their plot to kill him. So I know what you're doing. And this is why I came. I give my life. You don't take it from me. But I am exposing the fact that you do want to kill me. And that would have just threw him overboard. God hated hypocrisy. In the Old Testament, you see this. Look at, we'll only look at one of these two, but look at Isaiah 1. Real quick with me, if you have your Bibles. Look at Isaiah 1. He says here in 11, verse 11. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of ram." And the fat of the fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of the bulls and lambs and goats, etc. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. In your appointed feasts, they have become a burden to me. It's wearisome. I am weary. The Father, the creator of heaven and earth, says, I'm weary of your false religion. Every religion on the planet, besides Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is all the same. It's all works righteousness. It's all man-centered. All the philosophies of the world, Marxism, everything else you could possibly think of, philosophically speaking, outside the Bible, is man-centered. It's controlling, it's burdensome, it's damning. It will destroy you. In hell, there are a lot of religious people. Lots of them. Very good people. Like Mother Teresa, very good people. People that love God, but they understood that the way to heaven was by their works. Yet the Bible says they're filthy rags. We've got to understand there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Christ, that's through grace, that's through faith. He's saying, look, I'm weary of your works. I'm weary of them. I hate them. I hate your damning religion. I hate it what it does to people. I hate it what it does. I'm just trying to call this man up. I care about this man's hand. I'd like him to work again. 
I'd like him to be saved. I'd like him to know me, actually, in this place you call the house of God. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Oh, that's what he was doing for sure with the Pharisees. There's no doubt. Yes, even through you multiply prayers. You remember Matthew 6? Just prayers, prayers, prayers in the streets. God closed his eyes towards those prayers. I will not listen, he says. Your hands are covered with blood, including that man in the back. Because through your religious establishment, that man would never know who I am unless I brought him up to the front. Past you. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the, or the orphan, and plead for the widow. That is my religion. Compassion, love, but at the same time, always exposing falsehoods. Welcome to 2020. 2021. <laughs> Both years. That's all it was. If we're honest, I think this is the passage right here, folks. Right? He was just exposing everything under the sun in 2020. In 2021. He was separating sheep and goats all day long. That's what he does. The wheat and the tares. Question is, which side are we on? Who is your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Is it the biblical Jesus I'm reading here? Or did you make up some sort of Jesus on your own? Because there's many Jesuses. Everyone's got one. Everyone's got an opinion about him. Even the most religious ones do. So what would the Pharisees say to this question? What would they say? As often, they're silenced. <laughs> ah. They just kept silent. I, I don't know. We'll have a lot to say when he leaves. But for now, we probably should just be quiet. Because if they said yes, it is lawful to save a life. Well, then they are unable to accuse him. And if they said no, then they would be considered evil. And God forbid that. You know what the question really was? The point of this whole thing is, who represents God the most here? Them or me? It's ultimately what Jesus was trying to say. Them or me? Who has the Father, who, who carries the Father's heart more? Them or me? Them or me? Was it the one who showed compassion and shows compassion? Or is it the one who's cruel and evil trying to trap people? Interesting. As you look at people and the way they Deal with others when they don't get their way. Hmm. 
What did they do? There are many people that think they represent God in trying to bring a level of justice. That they are only like their father, the devil. Jesus is exposing these people. One theologian says, where good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality. Failure to do the good is to contribute to do evil. It is, it is thus not simple, simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath. Whether or not it is lawful, the litmus test of true versus false religion is its response to injustice. That's the difference. Jesus was exhibiting justice. He didn't want to see injustice happen. The injustices were these guys laying heavy burdens on the people. Jesus looked at them with anger and with grief. Now, a lot of you guys might say, okay, I understand the compassionate part, the grief part, but I don't understand the anger part. You need to tell me Jesus is angry? Well, here, let me read this again. After looking around at them with anger, comma, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said, and he had an action. Now, watch this. This is brilliant. This is incredible in the person of Jesus, and this is so important to our theology. This is incredibly important to the implications in our life. I'm just going to talk a little bit about compassion, then I'll talk about anger, and then we'll close. But his compassion and his anger go hand in hand. Now think about that. Logically think about it. He is provoked by anger. He's provoked to anger, I should say, by the hardness of the hearts in the Pharisees. But anger is not the last remaining quality in Jesus. No, anger then gives way to compassion. And that's the beauty. That's what's different about you and me. Oftentimes our anger doesn't lead to compassion, does it? And it's certainly not motivated by it. And the creed back in 8045... For, in the, I should say the 400s. There was, a, in Chalcedon, there was a very, very important discussion on the humanity of Jesus. And their creed was, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And we get that from Hebrews 2 and 4, that he had qualities of a man. He wasn't part man, part God. He was fully God, fully man. And, I, you know, we're not going to go deep into that. But the reality is, he had emotions, like man. He, he, had, he had human emotions. He, he'd get frustrated. He would raise his voice at times, and he would soften his voice. And he, had, he was angry. He was sad. He was, he was emotional. But he never sinned. He was perfect in all that he did. John Calvin says this, The Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh of his own accord, clothed himself also with human feelings, like you and me. So that he did not differ at all from his brethren. Sin only accepted. And I think that another one said this about compassion. It's not just pity. He wasn't just like feeling like bad about, oh, look at that guy with the messed up hand. Like, oh, pitiful. Mm -hmm. The true definition of compassion is actually quite interesting. 
It translates one's guts or intestines. It's the innermost core of who you are. This just, in the, in the meeting, he, he was teaching and he couldn't handle himself anymore, anymore. He just said, come here. He set aside his theology because he understood that his theology and morality were of one accord. They were the same. And he could not just keep teaching and teaching and teaching without saying, you cannot be in my presence that way. Come over here. I want to heal your hand. It was compassion. It burst forth from his insides. In fact, it says here, Richard Sibbs, Puritan, he said, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. Sounds kind of gross in a way. <laughs> the works of grace and mercy in Christ, they came from his bowels first. It's his inner being. He couldn't handle it anymore. That's why he said he healed everybody that came to him. That is who Christ is. We cannot tolerate the injustices of this earth because Christ doesn't. When he hears about North Korea, when he hears about China, when he hears about Afghanistan, something in him does not just say, well, the rapture will eventually come. No, no, no. He does something about it through his church, through his people. And his people cannot sit silent. They can't just sit there and say, well, I can't really do anything about that. Yeah, you can. You can pray. You can give. And you can go. But one thing is for sure. This thing just bursted out of his insights. It is the core. Of, it was not just like, I got a little compassion over here if I can find it. But I got a lot of anger. It's the beauty of this passage is you see the anger uh, towards the Pharisees and you see this incredible compassion and this grief. It was all mixed up in this body of Jesus, both man and God. But his emotions were perfect, unlike ours. Listen to one pastor says, when we see tragedy, death, injustice, pain, and suffering around you, what happens in your heart in that moment? Have you ever been somewhere? When you're looking out and, and you see, I mean, it could just be like an inner city. I mean, I remember growing up and going to Chicago so many times, I, we'd go to the White Sox game or the Cubs game downtown and away from the rich suburban neighborhoods we lived. We just saw horrific stuff growing up. I'm just thinking, this, this is unbelievable that people live like this here and then the people live like this over here. I don't understand it. What happens to you when you see something like that in, in the moment? You might have a little compassion, but it's always half-hearted compassion, and you need to understand that. The fall has ruined all of us, including our emotions. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, but they also sinfully underreact, don't they? And we've seen that even on the news, haven't we? seen that in our own lives. Why is our heart so cool towards these people around us? Because we are sinners. What then must it mean for a sinless man with fully functioning emotions to lay eyes on that leper? That is the beauty of this passage. The beauty of Christ. Sin restrains our emotions of compassion. 
What would unrestrained emotions of compassion be like? That is what Jesus felt. Perfect, unfiltered compassion towards that man in the back. That is the beauty of this passage. He is not like you and me. Jesus is not like us. And even in compassion, we can't even relate to him. Because his compassion is not like ours. His anger is not like ours. Listen to what this man said also about anger. Because they go hand in hand with his compassion. Not only compassion, but also anger, he says. A compassionless Christ would never have gotten angry at all the injustices around him. The severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. No, compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. It is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises and most fiercely if she is mistreated. See, that, my friends, is the heart of the father. He's angry at those jokers because they're hindering that man from the back from seeing his compassion. But they soon realize their false religion does not stop the Son of Man to reach out to him and to show compassion and heal him. You can't stop him. <laughs> Even if you try, you can't stop Jesus. He will show his compassion and he's showing it around the world even as we speak now. Right now. On the other side of the planet. In Thailand. Philippines. Southeast Asia. Places that are so dark yet so light because he's there doing the work of compassion. Exposing false religion but at the same time showing incredible compassion. Let me ask you this question. Which side are you on? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Who represents God the most? I love Jesus when he showed his, his anger towards the disciples when they were hindering children from coming to him. I love when Jesus shows his anger at the tomb of Lazarus because he realized he was troubled at heart. He realized that death and destruction and sin does to loved ones. I love what he did at the temple when he took a whip and he destroyed the religious establishment because it hindered from people really knowing who he is. Let me ask you, do you hinder people from knowing God because of the way your hard heart works, your pharisaical religious heart operates, the controlling part of us, where you let God expose it for what it is and move through you and actually to show compassion to you. John Flavel, he's a Puritan, he says this, this God in whose hand are all creatures is your father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. He's so much better than you. You think you might be compassionate? He's so much more. You think you can't receive any compassion? Oh, but just receive. Because that's what he delights in giving. You see, at the speed in which he shows you your sin is the speed you must go to Christ 
You must run into the throne room of grace. Do not let any delay. Because that will further harden your heart and unbelief. Right? I love what John Calvin says. We often doubt the characteristic of God. We often doubt his compassion. We often doubt the willingness for him to minister to our hearts. John Calvin says this, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive so that it ought to be described exclusively to our unbelief and that good if we do not obtain pardon from him. It's no one's fault but ours because he always has a hand out. He's always willing to say, come forward. It's the religious people to say, there's no need of that man. All you need is his Sabbath. That Sabbath would kill people. I love what he says. Calvin goes on to say this about Isaiah 55. Men are accustomed to judge and measure God from themselves. For their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. And therefore think that they cannot be reconciled to God. That's what all of us think. We can't. There's no possible way. But when they have offended him, but the Lord shows that he is far from resembling man, he can be reconciled. He's not like us. Truly his ways are higher than ours. Truly his thoughts are much greater than ours. Because it is difficult to remove terror from our trembling minds. Isaiah draws an argument from the nature of God that he will be ready to pardon and to be reconciled to us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. Have trust and faith to know that that is who he is. That is from his bowels. That is from his inner being. He, it's not a side job for Jesus. It's not a side job. You say, oh, by the way, let me just get to my teaching and just this mild interruption. That would have been the end of his teaching. That would have been the point of his teaching. And the last part of this in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now you think after all that, after all I just said, isn't that the most silliest thing you've ever heard? That just doesn't even make sense, does it? It does make sense. You know why it does make sense? Because it is just like our politics today. The Herodians were an irreligious and worldly political group that supported the dynasty of Herod the Great in Rome, of course. These secular Jews were loyal to the Greco-Roman culture and traitors to their own religious heritage. So in other words, they were the same nature of the Pharisees. There were two peas in a pod. They were just like each other. And so they said, hey, why don't we just do each other a favor? Why don't we come together? Because you see, the Pharisees hated Jesus because they, he exposed the religion. The Herodians hated Jesus because his popular, popularity began to grow among the people. That doesn't sound like today's politics. I don't know what does. Both in the church and in the world. As you can see, the mercy of Jesus towards the man was in contrast 
from the hatred displayed towards Jesus. It couldn't be any more of a contrast. And from here on, it's only going to get worse. But at the same time, it's going to get better for those who recognize their need. Because Jesus is ready, not just back then, but today, to show us incredible amount of compassion and love and mercy and grace. The problem is, is our control, our hypocrisy, our religion, it keeps us from it. And it says in Galatians 3.10, all who rely on the works of the law is a curse. If we continually rely on our works, continually rely on our fixing ourselves in front of each other, I'm telling you, that is going to hinder all of us from experiencing this incredible amount of grace, from this incredible voice that is constantly called us, hey, you, come up, come forward, stretch out your hand. I want to heal you, not just physically, but I want to heal your insides. I want to save you. I want to close with this last quote here. Uh, John Newton, he's a pastor and a hymn writer. He wrote this letter to a friend. And I think it's just really fitting as we close this off. And really, you need to decide where you're at. And do you really represent the heart of the Father? Do you have compassion towards people who need, who desperately need God? Are you looking with judgment? Do you, do you put them through a bunch of hoops so that they would never really know God keeps you in a place of control? And I think it's interesting, you know, as you're watching, I don't know if some of you guys watched uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court deal abortion. I don't know if any of you listened to it. You can't watch it. I'm, I'm, I don't know why. I mean, maybe you can't put the cameras in, in there, but you, you can listen to it, and you can listen to the interesting arguments. And so I thought it was kind of interesting that this, uh, this lawyer who is presenting arguments to the Supreme Court because they're wanting to abolish Roe versus Wade, which is pretty incredible, actually, in our day. And we should pray for that. It happens, the decision will happen in June 2022. So in about six months, we'll find out what happens. But as you're listening to these oral arguments, I found it very interesting that one of the lawyers was, was saying, look, we, we can't overturn this because, you see, we don't want state control over women. We can't allow uh, the state to come in to say you can't get an abortion because that would, that would mean the state has some level of control over a woman's body. No, it's just murder. And you shouldn't murder. But they don't understand that because we've taken God out a long time ago. But that's not the real interesting thing. The real interesting thing is the same people who say they don't want any state control want more state control. You know what the problem is? People are just controlling. They want what they want. God is exposing their hypocrisy. And he will yours. He will over and over and over expose your hypocrisy. That gives him great joy. Knowing that there's a glimmer of hope that you might receive his grace. 
Because that's the only way to change, folks. That's the only way to change. Is to allow him to crush you in order to expose the evil of our hearts so that we might accept him in life and have eternal life. Here on this earth, transforming life, but then for all of eternity. Listen to what John Newton says. His friend. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he cast none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. I'm telling you, the only way, the only thing hindering his grace, as John 1 says, grace upon grace upon grace, his ever-flowing grace to your heart that will both cover and empower you is your legal spirit and your unbelief. And that's why I think it's good to say like that man said, and so, who's so honest, wasn't he? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Get rid of my religion. Get rid of my legalism. I don't want that anymore. I want true faith. I want you to expose the darkness in my heart. Yes, all of it. And then I want to accept your grace. And I want to live. And friends, that's the only way to live. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for giving us your truth this morning. For exposing our hearts in a good way, even though I know that I can imagine it would be very intense in that synagogue that morning. And you, through anger, exposed the Pharisees' hearts. But you did that so that you can show compassion towards that man who is in need. Some of us may not be in life-threatening need. And that's encouraging to us that he continues to shower his grace on people that are most desperate, somewhat desperate, little desperate, but we are in need. And I suppose the more we recognize the depth of our need, the more empty our cup, if you will, the more he can fill it. And I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to empty those self-righteous, wicked cups that we have so that you can fill us the right way. And I pray, God, that you would continue to show us who you are and yet another facet of the diamond. You are truly compassionate and you're angry so that you could expose the religious establishment so that you might give life to people who need it. And your emotions are perfect. Oh my, we have those kinds of emotions. May we be angry at the right times. May we speak the truth in love. May we show compassion. 
May we exercise justice your way. God, give us eyes like Jesus. Give us eyes like Jesus. So we continue to see like you see. There's a lot of need around us. And may we never be blinded by religion so that we can see the need in others and give them the very same thing that you gave us. Pardon, forgiveness, grace and mercy time and time again. And I pray that there wouldn't be a delay. And when you expose the hypocrisy of our hearts, may we quicken to the throne room of grace to find help in our time of need. In Jesus' name. Why don't we stand to our feet and worship.